Tonight we're going to start Ezekiel. For historical background, one of the commentaries I read said Ezekiel probably was born during the time of Jeremiah. The book starts in the 30th year on the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Heber Canal. The heavens were open, I saw a vision of God on the fifth day of the month. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So, historically what's going on? Nebuchadnezzar took out Judah. We have, for example, the letter from Jeremiah saying, you guys are going to be there for 70 years. So, build houses, take wives, get jobs. Because the better you make things for your place of captivity, the better it will go for you. Do not rebel. You're not going to get out of there for 70 years. Ezekiel was among those taken by Nebuchadnezzar the first time around. So he is in Babylon with the exiles. And the first part of his prophecy is going to be against Judah and Jerusalem. Because what's going to happen is the remnant of Judah and Jerusalem are going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to send an expeditionary force back there. He is going to take all the rest of the people captive. That is the place where he's going to destroy the temple and raise the city. So this first set of prophecies is between those two events. Ezekiel has been taken into exile, he's in Babylon, so he's writing from Babylon, but his first set of prophecies have to do with the remnant that is left back in Israel. He prophesies for about 22 years, so he has a long run as a prophet. The book starts off fairly starchy, like most prophets do especially since Judah is about to go into rebellion and God doesn't want him to. So he's got all sorts of warnings to Judah. Don't do this. Don't do this. Of course, they do it, and the predictable results happen. So the commentaries date the beginning of his prophecies to 592 B.C., So Ezekiel was taken into captivity with King Jehoiakim on March of 597. And according to this timeline in the beginning of chapter 1, it is the fifth year of that exile. So we are now at 592. There's two opinions on what the 30th year means. Ezekiel is a priest, and he's the son of a priest. According to the Torah, on their 30th year is when they enter into service. So the dominant opinion is the 30th year is his 30th year of age. In other words, I am old enough to be a priest and to be in service. That's opinion number one. Opinion number two, from some of the rabbinic sources, is it's 30 years since the Torah was read to an apostate king back before the invasion of Babylon. Remember, they 
rummaging around in the temple, somebody finds a Torah and starts reading it, and everybody oh my goodness. And there is a rabbinic opinion out there that the 30th year refers to the time from the discovery and reading of that Torah until the beginning of his prophecy. I have no idea which one's correct. Use whichever one you like. As I say, the dominant commentaries that I've read is the 30th year means that he is 30 years old, which means that he is old enough to be a functioning priest. And hence, he is starting his prophecy and his ministry at a time when, were he back in Israel, he could serve in the temple. Beyond that, I have no idea what that 30th year means. Back up a little more. The Chaldeans sent emissaries, and Hezekiah takes them through everything and shows them the treasury, shows them all the glory of the temple, shows them everything, and the prophet, I want to say Jeremiah, uh, probably about the right time, says, you dummy, what are you doing showing these people all of that stuff? And then the next thing that happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes rolling back down through there, captures Jerusalem, and loots the place. But he doesn't destroy the temple, and he doesn't destroy the city. And he leaves a remnant there, and the the book of Jeremiah talks about that. Nebuchadnezzar installs Gedaliah as the governor, and some zealots kill Gedaliah and kill the officers that Nebuchadnezzar has left behind to watch the place. So that just naturally annoys the Babylonians. And several years later, they come back. And when they come back, they destroy everything and take it down. That's sort of the beginning here. So I'm all the way down now to verse 3, I think. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Hebar Canal. The hand of the Lord was upon him there. The Habar Canal is a canal off the Euphrates River that runs off to the east. And it was apparently where they had stashed a bunch of exiles. Verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, the four had the face of an eagle, such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Now, my translation says wherever the spirit would go, A good translation of that is also wherever the wind blew. 11 again. 
Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Stop there for a minute. His description, we could look at and we could see a helicopter. So let me show you, for example, a drone. Some of them have four or six rotors, something like that. And the drone will not change orientation, but will change direction. Now it'll be flying along and it'll just all of a sudden go sideways and then it'll go forward again and it'll go sideways and it won't turn as it does that, like a bird would. So here you have somebody in a non-technological society and what I'm saying is he's trying to describe something in terms that he understands. And what I'm saying to you is if we were seeing the same thing, we would say, Oh, that looks kind of like a drone, and you got strobe lights going, flashes of lightning, and you've got lights on the rims of the rotors, looks like eyes. You understand what I'm saying? And again, I am not saying that Ezekiel saw a drone. That's not what I'm saying. The purpose of the exercise here is what you do is you explain things in terms of what you know. And what he knows is lightning flashes, what he knows is wings, what he knows is chariots with wheels and so forth. I have no idea what he saw, but what I'm trying to do is bring the description so that you understand how people see things and think. The other thing is the four living creatures. He sees the murk of a twice, and the description will be slightly different in both cases. So what you have in the face of the four living creatures is a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. In the description that he sees the second time, you have a man, a lion, a cherub, and an eagle. Same vehicle, whatever it is, in both cases, but the description of the faces is different in those two cases. And the difference is the ox in one is described as a cherub in the other. And of course, you all know that these are the four living creatures that are around the throne of God, as seen, for example, by John. And furthermore, you also know or should know that the four gospels match the four living creatures. So you have Matthew, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You have Mark, who is the servant, who would be the ox. You have Luke, who is the physician, who would be the man. And then you have John, who is the mystic, who would be the eagle. The ox and the cherub correspond to the two different descriptions. What did the Israelites in the desert make for an idol, an ox, a golden calf. 
And what I'm suggesting and what lots of people have suggested is one of the things that they may have seen as they were going through the Red Sea and, you know, they had the pillar of fire, they may have seen a cherub as part of that deal. And what they were doing was trying to construct a cherub. And the same thing happens at Lachish and Dan. Remember when the northern ten tribes split off from the south? And Jehoiakim built two altars, one at Dan and one at Lachish. And he put a golden calf at each of those altars. And what I'm suggesting may have been the case is you remember you have two cherubim spreading their wings over the top of the ark. If this theory is correct, and I'm, you know, I'm not basing any theology on it, I'm just speculating here. What you have then is a cherub at Dan and a cherub at Lachish and their wings, if you will, spreading over Israel as opposed to Judah. In other words, it's a symbolic thing we have the two cherubim on top of the ark with their wings spread over the top of the ark. So what this breakaway kingdom says, well, what I'll do is I will put a cherub at the bottom of my kingdom and I will put a cherub at the top of my kingdom and have their wings symbolically spread over my kingdom. Anyway, do with that as you like. It is simply speculation, but I think there's something going on. So these four things around the throne go throughout Scripture, starting here all the way to Revelation. Verse 22, Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their head. When they stood still, they let down their wings. Then above their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. So I am assuming it was some kind of a armor or some kind of a vestment, obviously. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Comment was the description of this makes him think of the Messiah. And I kind of agree. John's description of the return of the Messiah has him on a white horse at the head of an army. But the idea of him riding a chariot like this, a Merkava, I have no problem with that either. And the other thing that I sort of suspect is there are a number of pre-incarnation appearances of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So you have the commander of the Lord's host who shows up at Jericho. 
and Joshua falls on his knees and gives him worship. Angels are strictly forbidden to accept worship. This one does not rebuke him at all. He accepts worship. Onward, Ezekiel chapter 2. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Now, as I have said several times, the signature reaction when meeting up with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is you lose your knees and you go down like a bag of rocks. Happens to Daniel, happens to Moses, happens to Joshua, everybody. And in fact, uh, when the angels come and announce the birth of Yeshua, what's the very first thing they say? Fear not, because the normal reaction under those circumstances is to need to go and get a change of toga. So it's interesting that the Spirit entered him and set him on his feet. By the way, the same thing happens to Daniel when he has a meeting with who I believe is Yeshua. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear you or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they shall know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. A couple of things here. We've been saying this quite a bit in Midrash lately. When God sends you a prophet, it's not to pat you on the back and say how good a job you're doing. God sends you prophets when you need to be straightened out or to straighten out. The other thing, of course, is with, I think, the exception of Jonah. Typically, when a prophet goes, nobody pays any attention to him. And then the other thing that happens is they stone him or throw him in jail or do all those other things. One of the things that the Lord is assuring Ezekiel is you don't need to be worried about these folks. I will protect you. And if you are a prophet, there's a real possibility that you're going to get lynched. That's what happens to Yeshua. It happened to Jeremiah, although he doesn't actually get killed. But it happens all the time. That's what, by the way, Ahab is trying to do to Elijah. Trying to find him and get his hands on him so he can throttle him and get him to reverse his edict about the rain. Verse 7. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Now, the thing that's going on here, obviously, is in order for God to be perceived as fair and just, even though he wrote it down for you in the Torah, when you go off the rails, he feels that he has to come and give you an opportunity to correct yourselves. One of the things that happens, of course, is when they don't correct themselves, the prophet's words get written down, which means we, thousands of years later, get to study them and see where things went wrong. Let me give you an example. One of the things that's been 
very much in the news this last year are riots. And you've all heard the expression to be read the riot act. And it's usually used in jest. I'm going to read you the riot act, which is to say, you're really messing up and I'm going to get all over you. And it's used by parents to their kids and all that kind of stuff. It's sort of a folk thing, but it's actually a real thing in the law. And what happens when the police read the riot act to a mob is it notifies them that the police regard this as a riot and you are to disperse immediately and cease what you're doing because we will now treat you as rioters as opposed to just a disorderly demonstration or something like that. So what it does is it kicks in statutes that allow the police to do certain things and require certain things of the public. So what the prophet is doing here to Israel is reading them the riot act. And he's saying, I'm going to send you to them. I don't care whether they pay attention to you or not. You are going to read them the riot act. And then when I have to act, they will have been warned and they will have no excuse. Verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Chapter 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find there. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I may give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This is not the only place where a prophet is told to eat a scroll. The other place is Revelation. And interestingly, the results are different. In Revelation, when he's told to eat the scroll, he eats the scroll and it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but it gives him indigestion. We don't get indigestion here with Ezekiel. One may assume that eating the word of God symbolically or literally in Ezekiel's case is a good thing. In other words, what God is doing is equipping him to go and speak the word. Eating the scroll in Revelation is somewhat different. And I heard somebody opine on this years ago, and I thought it was really very interesting. What about this that is sweet when you eat it and gives you indigestion? And somebody said, the New Testament. The reason for that is, what's happened is, people have eaten the New Testament and it tastes sweet in their mouth, But what they have been taught is the New Testament does away with the Torah. So what winds up happening is they go away from Torah and they have the form of religion like we have today, but they have no power. And you have churches today that are following after the culture instead of leading the culture. One of the roots of that is it's all grace, there's no more law. So in that sense, I could see how the New Testament would taste sweet in your mouth. Oh, it's all grace. But if you then digest it as being the law is done away with, then I could see how it would give you indigestion. 
do with that, again, whatever seems good to you. Just an interesting thought. Obviously, it's not scriptural. So if it's interesting to you, enjoy. If it's not interesting to you, ignore it. Verse 4. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So I will suggest that this sort of points you back to Jonah. Because Jonah was sent to a people with a foreign speech. And they did listen to him. And they did repent. But Israel, as I say, typically when they get sent a prophet, does not repent. Verse 8. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. I regard this as bucking up the prophet, because going and telling people that they are in flagrant sin is liable to get you stoned. So, for example, go to a gay pride parade and say, repent. I'm very serious. People who do not want to hear what you have to say are very likely to get violent. And what he's telling the prophet is, don't worry about it. I will protect you. Back to verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people, And speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. He said this now about three or four times. You're going to go talk to them whether they want to listen to you or not. Verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them. And the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles in Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Hebar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Obviously, this has been such an emotionally draining experience that it takes him a week to get going again, which is not at all unusual. Daniel undergoes similar stuff. Verse 16. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So if you have someone who is wicked 
and you say nothing and don't tell him, you are potentially complicit in what's happening. And again, when you live in an age where lawlessness is rampant, it is, in fact, physically dangerous to tell the wicked that they're being wicked. As you all know, Catholic bishops are trying to decide whether or not pro-abortion Catholic politicians should be eligible to receive communion. And rather than saying, oh, my church authority thinks that where I am is perilous enough for me that they are considering this, maybe I better think about what I'm doing. Rather than that, what they're doing is shaking their fist at the church and say, don't you dare. All this is very much in play with Ezekiel at this point. 20, again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he has done will not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you will have delivered. A couple of things going on there. There's a proverb to the effect that a single dead fly ruins a whole pot of ointment. And what this is saying is if somebody turns from his righteous ways and does something wicked, it will be as that fly in a pot of ointment and it will ruin everything. As I'm fond of saying, it doesn't matter how many great sermons you preach, just Diddle one choir boy, and that's all anybody remembers. That's what's being said here. And he says, if you confront such a one when he has gone astray, and he listens to you, you will have saved his soul as well as your own. 22. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Hebar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Notice again the same thing. The Lord's been talking to him, he's seen him once, and all that kind of stuff, yet when he sees him again, the same thing happens. It's sort of like John in Revelation. John walked with Yeshua, yet when John sees the resurrected Messiah in heaven, he goes down like a sack of bricks. The same reaction every time. 24. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute, unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now, I have no idea why they're binding him up and making him unable to speak, but I have a guess. 
if they bind him up and he is unable to speak for a time, everybody will know it. He's become the object of gossip in the community. And then all of a sudden you start speaking and you speak the word of the Lord, you will get a better audience than if you just wander through town with a hair shirt on and saying, repent. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he is struck dumb. And I sort of think the reason he is struck dumb is so he can't say, oh, I don't believe this, because he's supposed to be the daddy. And he questions the spirit who gives him the prophecy, and rather than let him speak against the prophecy, even in wonderment and screw it up, I think he's struck dumb. But it makes it more remarkable than when he names the child. So having Ezekiel tied up and laying on the floor is going to be the subject of gossip. And so then when he is released and starts speaking the word of God, I will suggest that gets him a more attentive audience. Don't know if that's what's going on, but that's the best I've got. Question was, who is they who will put the ropes on him? I do not know. No idea. Could be, as you say, the people who are ticked off at him for calling them out in their sins. It could also be the angel. Comment was, I was incorrect. It wasn't Jeremiah that upbraided Hezekiah. It was, it was Isaiah. Mm-hmm.